Thanks for joining the BCMA for this podcast. Today we are switching it up a little bit, and instead of our fantastic programs coordinator Lorenda hosting, and instead of interviewing someone from the sector, today you get Chloe and Leah. I'm Leah, the Learning Resources Coordinator. And I'm Chloe, and I'm the Indigenous Outreach and Partnerships Coordinator. So before we get started talking about the resources today, uh, we both wanted to make it clear that these are our opinions and ours only. We don't claim to know everything and we are just here passionate about you know, helping people decolonize and with their reconciliation work um, and excited to share these resources with you guys today. So Leah is a non-Indigenous settler and I'm of mixed Indigenous and settler ancestry. So, you know, we are, we are not representing any sort of Indigenous community and are just really excited to share these resources with you today. And the reason we're doing this podcast and releasing it on National Indigenous Peoples Day is that, you know, as non-Indigenous identifying people, there's sort of a role that we have to play in reconciliation and that we have to play in advocacy and knowledge gathering and sharing, especially right now, because Indigenous communities, Indigenous friends and colleagues are so busy supporting their own communities in light of the Kamloops Indian Residential School discovery, uh, as well as the discoveries of, of children in other residential schools that have come up last week. So we just, we felt like as much as we wanted to do something as a partnership project right now, we have the time and energy and we need to use our own time and energy to do that. And I was going to add too, that it's, it's also, you know, the time and energy, but there are some great resources for non-Indigenous allies to use and to get started on work and also to really support like the Indigenous communities that are in their area and that, you know, we have the capability of doing so much work right now. And we, and we don't need to always be putting the onus on our Indigenous community members to do that work. And I think that's part of it too, and really highlighting all of the resources that are out there right now that we can use. Yeah, we've just collected so many resources and we share them online. They're all on the Indigenous resource portal and we update that all the time, but recognizing that not a lot of people have the time or the energy to also be going on the portal as much as we update it. So we're really going to talk about resources today that we really like, what we like about them, what our takeaways from them were. Yeah, and hopefully these sort of are a good jumping off point for people. If you haven't read these resources or seen them, like maybe you'll go look at them. They're all going to be on the Indigenous resource portal as well as on the BCMA website. So you can always find them there. And hopefully it helps people explore more resources because mm-hmm. these all have great resources attached to the resources. That's our mm-hmm. plan. That's what we're going to do is talk about resources. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get into it. We picked some real foundations of learning. Mm-hmm. Um, the first being the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada's final report which is officially titled Honoring the Truth, Reconciling for the Future, Summary of the Final Report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. And it's from 2015. I liked this one because as much as we all talk about reading the calls to action that came out of the TRC, I think it's really easy for people to say, oh, I don't understand what this call actually means or this call doesn't apply to me. 
So therefore, I don't have anything to do for it. I don't have any action to take. But to me, the final report was so much more descriptive in explaining the calls to action. If you haven't seen this report, it's incredibly impactful. The content of this is incredibly narrative. Mm -hmm. Like It's full of quotes and stories and pictures from survivors and school employees and government records. It's a lot of data, like graphs and charts. So like if you're sort of driven by narrative or driven by data, there's something in this report that you can pull from Mm -hmm. and learn about. It's really hard to read it. Like I mm-hmm. had a hard time reading it. And I mean, it's 536 pages. So I've read a lot of it. I haven't read every page of it, although I think mm-hmm. that I should. But yeah, this is like core foundational document. Yeah. And I also think like you're, you're saying with the testimony and the stories and things with those, I think it's easy to digest the kind of like colonial history of Canada you know, like they really go into the Indian Act and the effect of residential schools and how those both were just a part of this large system that had these trickle-down effects into all aspects of Indigenous lives and how Indian agents used these legal systems and kind of colonial frameworks to take items and cultural possessions and ancestors from Indigenous communities. So it it paints a really good picture for non-Indigenous folks who maybe don't know the impacts of those legal frameworks on Indigenous communities. It really gives a great perspective of those impacts. And then like you say, it's coupled with personal testimony as well. So I think it's a really important document. It has those kind of definitions and explanations that I think are really useful. And, and, you know, like the point you're making about how you may not feel like the call to actions make sense with the work that you're doing, or, you know, it's not extremely clear. I think looking at this personal testimony and seeing the emotion and the personal impacts of these systems it makes it relevant to anything, to everything. So it's it's hard not to then see these call to actions as, yeah, I got to do it, you know, because these are people that were impacted by this and we're still using those colonial frameworks. So how can you, how can you not feel like you need to do something after reading those testimonies? And I think that was a really impactful part of this. When you were saying like it crosses all kinds of different realms and like you kind of see the interconnectedness of things like I think that's something that will come up again and again on all of the resources we talk about but like as you read the document look outside of just searching the document for the word museum or archive Mm -hmm. and seeing like that one call to action or two calls to action that are specific to your sector, you start to realize how impactful residential schools and the potlatch ban and all of the Indian Act legislation is across disciplines and Mm -hmm. the relationality of trauma in all of those aspects of Indigenous people's day-to-day lives. If you're dealing with people who don't understand residential schools Mm. or you're looking at the calls to action and thinking like, I don't know, like, does this really apply to me? And especially with Canada Day coming up, this document Mm -hmm. to me is at least Mm -hmm. mandatory skimming, mandatory reading, you know, this is the truth of truth and reconciliation. And that's an important factor. You have to know the truth before you can do anything about it. That's the foundation of it all is to understand and then move forward. Because with that understanding, I think builds a lot of that mutual respect and understanding that I think a lot of people are missing. It's a very much of a they us situation. Like it was, it's somebody else's history and not mine. And I think the larger discussions going on is it's this recognition that it's all of our history and that we all need to come together and and reconcile, not to overuse the word. And I also, you know, using that word, realize and recognize that in this document, they talk about how a definition of reconciliation is that we're getting back to this state of mutual understanding and respect and that 
really that was never there. So I think this document, again, like has a lot of really great foundational information that is a part of that early resource, or sorry, research stage of any sort of reconciliation or repatriation actions that a museum or cultural center would take. So like you say, it at least deserves a skin before you get going on projects. The second document? Yes, another big foundational one. Yeah, it's the United Nations <laughs> Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Andrew, yeah. Little bit of background. The resolution was adopted by the General Assembly of the United Nations on September 13th, 2007. Canada didn't endorse it till 2016. They introduced legislation in 2020, and that's not passed yet federally. But if you live in BC, the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act passed into law in BC in November of 2019, and we're eagerly awaiting an annual progress report. It starts with a lot of whereas, Mm -hmm. recognizing and considering, and that sometimes throws my brain off. So I think that as much as it's a short read, not an easy read either. Yeah, and I think this one even more than the TRC in terms of does this apply to the work that I'm doing? I feel that more so with this one. This one takes a little bit more, there's a little bit more nuanced in it and you have to kind of find where your responsibilities lie with their kind of action items because there's really only about two that are kind of overtly related to museum and cultural sectors. But I think a lot of them are important to look at and implement as well. And I really like that they set out the inherent rights of Indigenous people as kind of a base before we get into the the nuance of like cultural items specifically in, in repatriation, like, you know, the importance of giving back and allowing really Indigenous communities to regain their, you know, sovereign governance of their land, you know, culture, education, and, and economy. And I think all of the repatriation is part of that, but they lay, they lay those bigger topics out well again. I wrote that it was Article 11 and Article 12 that were like material culture and ancestral remains were mentioned. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Article 11 in this says that, you know, museums and cultural sector have the responsibility to reunite items that were stolen and provide, and and I quote, effective mechanisms to do so, you know, within the whole colonial structure of canon general, museum and cultural sector, within that the supports themselves can feel quite restricted and because they are within that colonial structure. So not only do you need to have funding, not only do you need to have somebody on staff that could be uh, a liaison, those things need to be effective. Timelines need to make sense for communities. You need to have the cultural training and competency to do that work because Otherwise, it's not going to be effective. It's going to be half done. You're going to have this contact and you're probably going to be left wondering, you know, what went wrong? What else do I need to do? You know, like I use this, I did this. But like you say, like we need to really make those connections with communities and think how we can serve them and not why I reach out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because the whole thing is the onus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And not always putting it into a project bubble, looking outside of that. I think a lot of what we've been hearing too outside of these resources is that your board, your budget for your annual budget needs to include funds and resources for this kind of work. Otherwise, it's going to be hard to do. 
when I think about like the fact that BC has passed this already into law and I was looking at there's like a fact sheet that the government released so I was like trying to figure out like what does this actually mean for BC in terms of like this new act the way it was worded and the way that I understood it was just that in relation to all of the laws in BC if there's any adaptations or additions to law in the province from you know 2019 onward the government is required to ensure that all of the changes and new legislation aligns with UNDRIP. Mm. So, I mean, that sounds like a really huge, huge task. Because, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of articles in UNDRIP. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they're, I'm getting that like, oh gosh, feeling of like, that's a big overwhelming task, but also really good. Because as we're going to talk about later, there's a lot of legislation that really needs to be changed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and these principles will guide like really good change. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think, yeah, I think that again, this one's like a good background basis for like moving forward with work and like a really important one. For me, when I read this, it, and you hear about how governments sign on to things like these and then they don't follow through on all of them, but you, you hear every once in a while, you know, something is, something works. They did some project and you think, oh, you know, like we're working away and pat on the back. But when you really read these articles, it shows you how we've already really failed as a country in terms of one of them, part two of Article 7, quote, Indigenous peoples have the collective right to live in freedom, peace and security as a distinct peoples and shall not be subjected to any kind of genocide or any other acts of violence, including forcibly removing children of the group and or another group. And, you know, with recent news, it's clear that that's been violated already. So I even like your point, like you kind of see these and get discouraged. That in itself can be discouraging, but it should also really be a fuel to want to make change mm-hmm. and, and do the work. Yeah, so. I agree. If you haven't read the TRC calls action and you haven't read UNDRIP, and one, I don't know how you've managed to not read them. No offense to anyone who really hasn't gotten around <laughs> to it, but like these are 2007 and 2015 and they're mentioned in literally every decolonizing, indigenizing, reconciliation information I have ever read. They're must reads. Yeah. I can't really do the work without them. Yeah, exactly. I think the next one we're going to talk about, the Royal BC Museum's Repatriation Handbook, really kind of puts fuel in your fire. This one has a little bit more, this is what you can do and where you as an organization can also do that kind of work. Yeah, I feel like if you're listening and you just got really down on the fact that you're <laughs> saying there's so many things going wrong, there's so many things to change. Like, okay, here we go. We're turning around. The Indigenous Repatriation Handbook is written by Jiang Mika Collison and Stahl Kawas Lucy Bell and Luann Neal as well. And this was published in 2019. As much as this is aimed more toward Indigenous communities who are pursuing repatriation work, I think it's such a useful document. I mean, not only part six of the document is is for institutions wishing to repatriate to Indigenous peoples, but the whole document gives you so much insight into how much work has to go into even starting to do repatriation work. And I think that that's just an opportunity. If you're an institution who is trying to write your repatriation policy or is looking to update your repatriation policy, reading this provides you with a bit of insight into all of the barriers and the hurdles that Indigenous people have to go through. Mm -hmm. And it's a great opportunity to look critically at your own processes and see like, how can you make it easier? 
Yeah, I think this one really, it really shows the ways, like you say, you can make it easier for Indigenous communities. One of them is, you know, talks about the importance of nation-based learning from elders and cultural keepers, language keepers, folks like that. But to like create spaces, physical spaces in your in your center to make that process, those conversations more comfortable because it's traumatic, really, looking at these items that we're taking from your community. And it could be your direct ancestors. Having all of that set up is, I think, a really important part of what this document talks about. I think we can kind of look at the research and community engagement. A lot of folks do that. You find someone in the community to talk to. And then you kind of start from there. But I think what's left out is the emotional side of the process and the work that needs to be done to make sure that you're not inflicting more because you'll be opening wounds, but you're not going to be inflicting trauma on the Indigenous communities that you're reaching out to. I think that's an important thing. And then also setting clear parameters and direction for the goals of your organization. So the values, the principles of the folks that are working on this project and the scope of your authority, because that really like makes sure that the boundaries between you and the Indigenous communities are clear and you're you're respectful of their needs and ultimately where these items are going to go and, and to make sure that, you know, everybody's respected, like I said, so... Yeah, and I think that it's easy for museums and archives and other heritage institutions and art galleries. They only see that tiny sliver of the work that goes into repatriating anything. Yes, you accept the paperwork and you look at the request for repatriation and you evaluate with your board or your committee or whoever it is that you've assigned to do that work. And then you make a decision. I mean, we've talked to community members who have said, yeah, I used all of my aeroplane miles to travel to visit my family objects that are in the museum a country away or that they've spent time and money even identifying yeah they've spent years looking for hopefully with COVID this is getting easier to do but like think of all the hours and the money you spend looking at archives trying to find data that hasn't been put online yet having that stuff scanned or printed and mailed to you looking through all of that like there's so much work that goes in and I think if you're a museum you might not think about that and you know when you look at your collections records you might see like collector was so and so from England and that's great but the records are not very good (laughs) you know you might think that that's totally Totally well and good that this collector collected the thing, but how did they collect it? Mm-hmm. Did they collect it and pay for it? Did they collect it from an Indian agent who confiscated it? Did they collect it from a community who really needed the money to feed their children and their grandparents and sold their artifacts because they had no other choice anymore? There's so much history there that has to get researched and unpacked and emotionally processed mm-hmm. to go through the work of repatriation. Not to mention all of the things that come after. I mean, if you're repatriating ancestors, there's mm-hmm. no ceremony for reinterning ancestors. Like, yeah, like you know, yeah. they weren't meant to be removed. In the handbook, I think it's Lou Ann Neal who says, think of the cost of burying a loved one. This is a second oh. funeral. Mm-hmm. There's so many costs that you just don't think about from a museum lens. It feels like the least a museum can do to yeah. update their policy, do some outreach, keep your records up to date and like do some research into your own records Mm -hmm. and care for everything in the best way you can while you wait to send it back. But it's like, do everything you can to be proactive. This handbook is your microscope. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That was very ranty, but no, (laughs) no way. Cause it's, it's, it's true. And this is like a rant worthy topic, I think. 
you know, you mentioned about how like learning about how these items are taken and, you know, under what conditions this handbook goes over that a lot of these transactions occurred under duress. So yes, records show that so-and-so said, for sure, you can have it. But it was like you say, because of all of the external colonial impacts and structures forcing them to make that transition. Like you say, they needed that money to feed their family because they didn't have the rights anymore to hunt and gather for their own economy. Exactly. So I really like the point they make about museums have the responsibility to affect societal change. The proactive part that you mentioned, that's part of it. Don't get comfortable with managing your own collection, with doing the same exhibits about the settler community in your region. Kind of like recognize where you are and the history that's there and get uncomfortable. This is all uncomfortable for settlers, but that's okay. Dig into it. Because ultimately, this is like our shared history. And we have a responsibility to correct that as much as possible and support Indigenous communities because of all the things they went through. This is something that I, I was, this was like new to me in this handbook was not only doing the research and connections with the people who whose lands that you're directly on, but connect with communities neighboring as well, because they may have insights or a connection to items that you know, if you just Google and say, oh, I'm on so-and-so's territory, try to expand that conversation and who is neighboring and what other items may you have of theirs and what you could unearth by connecting to other communities. I thought that was a really interesting point because I think it's easy just to Google directly where you're at and talk to those folks. So like on page 66, it has the repatriation planning checklist. And I think that's kind of a, that's a good insight to the kind of work that, like you said, like Indigenous communities have to do to even get to the point of like identifying repatriate or yeah, repatriatable items. Mm-hmm. This is a good kind of starting basic, I would say, level of actionable items. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and perhaps some that your organization may not have thought about before, like a terms of reference or even creating a repatriation committee instead of your collections person or a new one person indigenous collections hire think about really like changing the structure get your board of directors involved have some more diversity so that as an organization you can prioritize this type of work and perhaps make connections with indigenous communities through those hires through the new board members and again just expanding yeah that's also my rant <laughs> so the the fourth resource is by Dr. Lynn Gell, who is Algonquin Anishinaabe Quay, and it is from the website Unistoten, and it's titled Resources on Allyship and Solidarity. And it starts out under the title of Ally Bill of Responsibilities. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of responsibilities, though, because I think ultimately that's what it is. Because I feel like, you know, it's, oh, so-and-so is so nice for doing this work, where really that should just be an automatic. It is a responsibility of museums and cultural centers to do this type of work. So it sets the right tone. And like you say, it is intense, but that's okay. (laughs) That's okay. A lot of these things are really intense. I think that's part of it, too. And that maybe... I don't do a good enough job of being transparent as we're talking about this, but like 
none of this is comfortable. A lot of these things feel really intense and they feel really big and I don't always know what to do with them. And I definitely don't always do things the way I should. So it's trying to practice being scared of things and uncomfortable with things. I mean, the first one is fairly easy to digest. Like don't Mm -hmm. act out of guilt. Mm -hmm. You should have a genuine interest in challenging the systems of oppression and the structures of oppression and not be acting out of guilt. And the second one, yeah, the second one talks about how your own concerns, your, your needs are not in play here. You know, this is uncomfortable, but it's necessary because think about what's happened to the Indigenous communities, the amount of trauma and hardship that's happened. So I think as, you know, settlers and non-Indigenous folks, the least we can do is be uncomfortable. (laughs) That's a good way of pushing through it, I think, that Mm -hmm. instead of, you know, being defensive or this wasn't me, doesn't matter. And you are a part and you are benefiting from the colonial system, whether you realize it or not. And that Indigenous folks are being disadvantaged because of it. So this is just one small way of trying to correct that. Mm-hmm. We're not going to go through all of these points, but tip number three is one that I've noticed a lot more lately, being sort of rooted and grounded in your own ancestors. And I've noticed this being something that a lot of decolonizing workshops and seminars and things that we've been attending have included, where introductions are actually you saying like your name, but also your ancestry and your heritage. And it really helps you recognize the homogeneity of the people you work with, but Mm -hmm. also the diversity of the people you work with. So part of it is that it's really nice to start with that because it does feel like a little bit of an insight into who and what you're working with and why you're all there. But you have to sort of embrace your own story of where you came from Mm -hmm. so that that's not the baggage you continue to carry. Mm -hmm. Like, I am full ancestry of colonizing countries. I am Spanish and English and just all of the not so great people. But those are my ancestors. Mm -hmm. That's my background. So what can I do now? I'm not guilty. I would carry that guilt, but I do want to make things better. So Mm -hmm. what can I do? Yeah. You know, what, what service can I be? And I think this resource talks about how you can really start to be that ally, moving beyond yourself and seeing, you know, what does a community need, listening and learning from them before anything happens. I think that's huge. I feel like a lot of groups who are genuinely wanting to do this work will jump into their own investigations and do works and put out programming and things like that without real in-depth conversations and research alongside Indigenous communities. Because I think a lot of what comes out of independent research could be so much better and effective and genuine if you make those connections with Indigenous communities. But to also be aware that you don't want to put the onus on them and like take up too much space (laughs) because ultimately they may not have the resources or the time to help you in your work. And I think that's something that some folks struggle with is that they generally want to make these connections, but their communities don't have time. And then how do you move beyond that? Something to navigate for sure. I feel like a lot of these points are helpful in when you try to build relationships and you're trying to be supportive and think about the lens with which you are using versus the lens of the people that you are trying to help. Like, I think a lot of these points are really good to keep in mind or to keep going back to. Like, since you pointed this resource out, I've already bookmarked it so that I can go back to it again and again because there's definitely moments where I forget. And like I said, like, I'm not perfect. 
Mm-hmm. I don't do this super well all the time. There are times when I'm on the ball and there's times when I'm really not on the ball. But I think having something like this that you go back to and borrow thought from, mm-hmm. it makes it like a very valuable resource that can kind of help you stay on task. So yeah, it's like a way to self-reflect. Mm-hmm. A lot of these points are like, remember your position and remember how you benefit from the levels of oppression. Be mindful of the space you're taking. And then, you know, the last one is accepting the responsibility to learn about your role and how you can help and to be a more effective ally. Because I think it's easy to say, well, I'm well-intentioned, so therefore I'm an ally. But I think what's important is to make sure that you have some action attached to it. So again, the effective ally, I think, is kind of the important point here. Yeah. And I think there was one point in the lower half of this document that I was thinking on because I think there's been a lot of conversations that we've had with people in the the museum community and the BCMA community and with people who we've heard talk through webinars that we've attended from other organizations where people are fearing about funding. And there was one point in here where I I thought a lot about that was as settlers and non-native people acting in solidarity, it's our responsibility to proactively challenge and dismantle colonialist thought and behavior in the communities we identify ourselves to be part of. So if you think of yourself as a member of the museum community, the cultural heritage sector, your job as a settler or a non-native person within the space that you identify with is to look around and think some of the systems are funding structures that really disadvantage our ability to partner with an Indigenous community or threaten my relations with Indigenous communities. Like, look at them critically and then think, what can I do? If you're seeing it, I get that funders are scary and you feel like if you speak up about it, I might not get funding next year. If that's Mm -hmm. the reality of funders, then they're going to find themselves out of people to fund very quickly if we all start recognizing and trying to challenge that system. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we had a decolonizing workshop with Primary Colors the other week, and one of the facilitators pointed out, funding people need you as much as you need funding people um, Mm -hmm. or funding organizations. So if you've done a project or you're looking to do a project and you're like, wow, this really doesn't work for me and here's why, or this really doesn't work for the partnership that we had planned and here's why, then you should be putting that feedback on paper to say, hey, funding committee, here's a problem we had with the timeline or here's a problem we had with how the grant funding worked that we think would be really beneficial to change so that this work can continue and we can work toward reconciliation or we can do these collaborative things without these barriers in place. So mm-hmm. just piecing together bits that we heard and things that I'm reading and thinking like if you're feel like you need to make action there's something you can do Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's a structure that you can help to challenge and change you just need to provide the feedback to do it exactly and you're just in by not it's in a way you're just kind of fortifying those structures and you're not you're not helping yourself let alone the indigenous communities by allowing them to continue, right? Because ultimately the projects and the initiatives that you may have, they won't be as effective. So like you say, why not speak up about how things can be better? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be huge. It's not a, this shouldn't exist, it should be gone. It's a, this timeline needs to be longer. There shouldn't be so many requirements or onus on Indigenous communities to 
have specific records about incorporation or the exact family member that they believe an item is from. Like there needs to be flexibility that I feel like a lot of people feel are missing in, in a lot of funding opportunities. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that's I, like stuff that anyone can pick out. Like I think if you're reading mm-hmm. these resources with your own experiences in mind, these things will become easier to pick up on with practice. And then, you know, the more you read and the more you put your experiences in the reading together, the more willing and confident you're going to be in putting those words out there to be the person who challenges the mm-hmm. status quo. So I think that more critical. as much as we're like, yes, email the funders. Yes, make the changes. I get that that's a scary thing to do. And if you're at the point where you're just trying to learn it all, that's okay too. Like you need to start where you are. And if where you are is taking in information and trying to reflect on your own experiences within those lenses that's great because that's critical thinking skills and that's a skill. It is a thing you need to practice. It does not come naturally. I was not a very good critical thinker for a long time. (laughs) I will still get better at it in the future. Mm -hmm. It is a practice. I think the more people read, the more they'll put them together. So yeah, I think that's a great point because for myself, especially looking at these resources, I'm thinking about these actions and the reflections and relationship building points for folks that have an organization who's willing to do the work. And like you say, you may not be in a position that you can, you know, so don't get discouraged by that, really. Like you say, do the work that you can as an individual, build those relationships, because ultimately it starts at the individual level. It doesn't have to be from the start an organizational kind of value or mission. Yeah, and we've seen Start that. with yourself. We've seen that yeah. time and time again recently yeah. that mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't work top down. Mm-hmm. It's going to be everyone who has to be individually doing the work to collectively make the change. So mm-hmm. it's tough stuff. Mm-hmm. I know, and obviously these this isn't everything. This is you know that we felt like could be digestible in a podcast but of course there's so much more out there and I think that is how we started was recognizing the great resources and materials that are already out there that non-indigenous folks can use to do this kind of work and that hopefully this will help folks unpack them get inspired to do the work and start building relationships yeah and I would just encourage people you know with this podcast being released on National Indigenous Peoples Day and Canada Day is coming up and there's hashtag cancel Canada Day posts going around. I think digging into these resources and either committing or recommitting yourself to the ongoing learning that needs to be done is something that we all really need to make a priority. So my hope really is that the resource list and the discussion that we've had now makes you think and makes you inspired to keep learning or to have a discussion and that you maybe put something into practice in your personal life or in your institutional world or wherever you can to make things better in general, but to really improve our sector. I mean, we have a lot of work to do and we have to do that work together. So yeah, I think the togetherness is important. And we obviously enjoy looking at these things and doing the work. And I think we're both very privileged to be able to take the time to do that within our job position. And I think we both recognize that folks may not have the time or space to do this type of research on their own, but that doesn't mean it's not important. So I think it's critical for organizations to allow their staff and members to do this type of work for anything to happen. Yeah, I think building this into your workplace culture is really important. Um, Yeah, you're right. We are so lucky to have the time and space to do this within our jobs. And as an extension of that, like if someone 
who's listening to this is thinking like, oh gosh, I really need a resource on this. Or I'm wondering if you've come across anything on the topic of whatever. You can always email us. Like that's basically what the PCMA is here to do. I mean, we, we connect you with information. We try to help you develop professionally. We love taking the feedback and we like to use it to program everything that comes after. And on a second note of that, if there's a resource that you really love that we maybe haven't seen yet, you want to know exactly. that, but share it with us. We will share it with the community. Like we said, doing this as a community is important. Sharing this together is important. Mm-hmm. So if you have something you love, share it with us because then everyone gets to read it and benefit. Yeah. And then also, if you have any feedback on the resources that we chatted about today, let us know and We'd love to critically think about these resources and what it's missing, what's wrong with them, how the language can be better. If you want to see more, let us know. I think we would both be happy to continue these conversations with different resources. Or if you want to chat with us about resources, please connect. We would love to share your experiences and thoughts with the larger community and help others learn from from your experiences. You can head over to our website. All of our staff contact information is there for you. Coe and Leah. Coe and Leah. The dynamic (laughs) duo. Just bringing you resources. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks everyone for listening. Reach out if you have time and want to. We'd love to hear from you. Hopefully you enjoyed this very long-winded section of resources. And hopefully something was helpful. (laughs) Bye everyone. Bye. Bye.